Hello and welcome to Folio the Podcast. This is Ingrid Velasquez. In this series, we are going to bring you insight, tips, and helpful advice to help you design better, build more efficiently, and grow your design and build firm. Today we have with us Wally Zimalong Esquire. He is a lawyer for the real estate and construction industries. He has successfully litigated hundreds of cases and has counseled clients all over the country on developing and constructing highways, multifamily apartment buildings, professional and collegiate sports stadiums, schools, and uniform plan communities. He has also tried numerous cases to verdict and has an uh, undefeated jury trial record, which I think is pretty badass. Folio is a product specification and data management software for the design and build industry. Our software streamlines the creation of product schedules, purchasing, invoicing, creating documents, and more. If you'd like to know more, please go to folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com. Today, we will be learning about two topics. Uh, One of them is scope, price, and time, and the other one is payment terms and conditions. Uh, Thanks a lot, Ingrid, and and thanks a lot for everybody. that's joining here today. As as Ingrid said, I'm a construction attorney. I've been practicing uh, uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, I, I can't believe it's gone uh, by that long. I'm actually in my 18th year of practice, but I've spent my entire uh, career representing uh, contractors and developers and uh, uh, design professionals and, and you name it. I've 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 represented uh, folks on uh, in disputes uh, for two thousand dollars up to uh, several million of dollars. So I've seen it all. And, and the one common thread that runs through all of the disputes I've, I've worked on in my career is, uh, it really all comes down to a matter of contract. And I often tell clients that a dispute as far as the time and expense that goes into litigating a case, uh, regarding a, uh, construction project, uh, doesn't, uh, necessarily have anything to do with the amount in controversy it has to do with uh the um with what the what the facts are in the case and that um that's important uh because it just underscores uh the expense that goes into litigating a a case um involving this a dispute over a contract and i'm often you know, I'm often called by clients to uh, to address disputes after they've happened, and um, it's much more frequent that I'm called in uh, to give my opinion and and render my assistance for clients over a dispute, a contractual dispute, uh, after the dispute has arisen, after the contract is signed, and after either the work is underway or the work has been completed. And if I, uh, I, I if I had one piece of advice to give my clients and give anybody else that was calling me, is that uh, I would say an, an overwhelming number uh, of these disputes could have been avoided if the client had reached out to me first and had me review the contract and review 
the, the terms and conditions that they were agreeing to. And and I understand that it can be difficult and it can be, I'm, I'm as much a small business owner myself as I am a, a practicing attorney and I, I can understand how hard uh, folks work to get clients and how difficult it is to get and maintain clients and in, in, in the rush to secure a client or get a new customer, it can be easy to overlook uh, just exactly what uh, you're agreeing to when you uh, are engaged by a new customer, as opposed to um, as opposed to um, taking the time to review the relationship that you're getting into. And we often lose sight of that, and we we focus solely on the economic aspects of it, and 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 in the rush to to sign that new customer, forget about some of the details. So this this series, as Ingrid said, is is really a chance for all of you to get familiar with some of the stuff that I've seen uh, in my 18 years of practice. Uh, what I have I consider the most uh, common areas of dispute and causes of the dispute. Um, in the construction industry for design professionals and others. Um, and today we're going to start with uh, price and uh, time and payment uh, terms of a contract. And before I, uh, I go any further, I just want to make sure that I am, uh, I feel that my screen is probably not in the best position for everybody. So I just want to take a second here and recalibrate my slides. I apologize. Uh, I think that's the view I, I, I wanted to give everybody. Okay. So scope, price, time, and payment. These, these terms seem and appear so basic and so fundamental. You may be wondering, um, why we're even spending any time uh, talking about it, but you would be surprised how frequently uh, we see disputes arise in these four main areas. Uh, the four most, most fundamental uh, things in a contract. What are you going to do? Uh, what will you be paid to do? Uh, how will you be paid to do it? And how long do you have to do it? Uh, and it's amazing uh, like I said, how frequently disputes arise in these areas. So let's talk about scope. Scope is simply what you have agreed to perform for your customer and what does your client agree to pay you for. And you need to be clear in the contract specifically what services you're going to be performing for a client and what services you will not perform for a client uh, without additional compensation. Where I see the biggest uh, mistakes in this area is that a client requests a proposal and for the most part, uh, you set forth in a clear and uh, an understanding basis what it is you're agreeing to perform and what it is that is excluded from your proposal. And then that proposal gets affixed to a larger contract, which the client sends back to you. And very few people actually read the contract that is sent back to them, assuming that their proposal has been accepted, their proposal is attached, and uh, everybody is clear as to what uh, the scope of work that is agreed to be performed is. 
and you countersign the contract and you're on your way. What you often see is that your proposal conflicts with the terms and conditions of that larger contract. And it's amazing. I see this problem on projects big and small, several million dollar projects and small projects. And it's often uh, very discreet language that causes a very large dispute. It could be simply, simply something like uh, there was a, a type of uh, permit or a type of tax that was excluded from the proposal and wasn't set forth in the proposal, but may uh, in the contract may be stated that you've agreed to pay for those or front those costs for a client. So you need to be clear about that. And, and if you could take uh, one lesson away from this webinar today, it is don't simply allow your proposal to be attached to a larger document. Make sure the scope of work in the larger document accurately reflects the proposal that you've presented to the client. And if it doesn't, you simply have to ask the client to cut and paste your proposal and put it in the body of the document. So now, uh, now that you know uh, and we've clarified what you have agreed to perform, you need to, you need to uh, define what is included in your contract price. Clearly, you've agreed to pr uh, perform a certain scope of work in exchange for a certain uh, dollar value of payment. But is it clear uh, in your contract what your customer will be paying you for? Because it often is not. Is, you, is the price that the customer is going to pay you for your labor and material and supervision only? Or do you anticipate your client paying you for things such as taxes, bonds, your insurance, and as I said before, things like permits and fees? Uh, you may think that that's an, an understanding that the client is going to reimburse you for that, but it's always best to uh, make sure that it's spelled out in the contract. And the reason for that is, and I, and I probably should have stated this at, at, at the outset, is most people have heard the term, get it in writing. And, and that's just not something that we have as a, a term of art or something that we colloquially, colloquially will say. Uh, it's in fact the, the law. And what the law is, is that if you have a written agreement, the courts are going to look to that written agreement as the manifestation of the intent of the parties. And very rarely are the, is the court going to entertain evidence as to what the parties thought or what the parties said to each other, uh, even if what they thought and what they said to each other uh, prior to or contemporaneous with the execution of the contract, even if it conflicts with what the contract says. So it's not enough for you to say, well, I know it doesn't say that uh, specifically say that the client's going to pay me for my uh, for permits and costs that I front for the client, but my client told me that don't worry about it, uh, he's going to pay me for it or she's going to pay me for it. 
that's not going to fly because the court's just going to look at the contract and say, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Smith. You don't have that in the written agreement, and I can't entertain what was said outside of the contract. So that's that, that just underscores that point. Now, next, we need to talk about time. As a designer, you know how difficult it is collaborating with other people on a project. Whether you're a smaller interior design firm working with outside contractors or an architect in a global firm working with another team, let's face it, emails just don't work. Try Folio. Our collaborative software allows you to work with contractors, vendors, purchasers, owners, and whoever else you need to work with so you can deliver projects faster. I know what you're thinking. Doesn't that mean they can also see proprietary information? Don't worry. With Folio, you can decide to the very smallest detail what your collaborators can have access to and whether they can edit the data or not. Get your free trial today at folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Get your free trial and change the way you collaborate on design and build projects today. If there's one term in a contract that I see most frequently admitted it's time. Everybody more or less has something that discusses what the scope of work is. Of course, in a written contract, I, I don't think I've seen a written contract yet that doesn't have some price that uh, the client has agreed to pay and you've agreed to accept the performance of that work. You're, obviously, if you're not clear, there may be a dispute later on as to what's included in your price. But I've never seen a contract without a price in it. In fact, I don't even think You'd really have a contract if you didn't have a price. But time, how long is it going to take you to complete your scope of work is frequently admitted. In fact, uh, except for uh, larger contracts, uh, such as, or, or, or more robust contracts, such as those that are uh, a standard set of documents, consensus docs, the American Institute of Architect family documents, AIA documents, uh, time is frequently omitted, and a, something with a completion time is the exception. A contract with a, a, a time for completion is the exception rather than, than the rule. In fact, we often see in the more uh, sophisticated and robust contracts that have a specific provision for someone to include a time for completion that it's often left blank or that the time for completion is not consistent with when the contract was executed and it doesn't simply uh, give the uh, contractor or design professional a, a reasonable amount of time to complete the scope of work uh, that they've agreed to perform. It's simply an oversight. So you need to understand that if there is no time set forth in the contract, courts will uh, read in a reasonable amount of time into the contract. What is reasonable? Well, it's going to depend on the facts and circumstances of the particular case. And it's also going to take you a lot, cost you a lot of money to prove what is reasonable. 
because reasonable is a subjective term. It's fact sensitive. That means there is, if you get into litigation, there will be discovery. And with discovery, you have uh, increased costs. So do not assume that there is a mutual understanding that your work is anticipated to take a certain amount of time. Moreover, if there are delays on a job that have nothing to do with you, you should get an adjustment in the time it takes you to complete the contract. You should not be held to an unreasonable completion date. So if you are in the situation where there's, it's the exception rather than the rule, and there is a completion date included in your contract, make sure it's reasonable and make sure when you receive your notice to proceed from your client that you can complete the contract and the scope of work set forth in your contract in your in the time frame that the contract has provided for you because again uh, the contract is going to be used as what the parties intended to uh, the uh, agreement to be so if you're in the situation where the con the time uh, frame set forth in the contract perhaps isn't reasonable perhaps you were not uh, noticed to proceed because of some delay beyond your control and the client says to you don't worry i'm not going to hold you to the contract completion date uh, that's that's not going to be enough you're going to want to have a a written amendment to the contract that memorializes that contract completion date so i've given you so far just sort of a general overview if you could just take three points look at the scope look at the price look at the time and make sure uh make sure they're reasonable and make sure they include everything you believe they need to include. Uh, there's nothing uh, that says a contract can't be too specific uh, or too precise. And no one's ever going to hold you to that. Now I'm going to move on to some, uh, I, I don't want to, I, I struggle to use the term esoteric or maybe some, some more specific contract clauses that you may see and particularly in, in some more sophisticated contracts. And the reason I've chose the following is because they, it, they relate to some of the lessons that I just talked to you about scope uh, in particular. And the first clause that you need to be aware of in your contract and where it may conflict in the area of scope are those clauses known as flow down or incorporation by reference clauses. Now, what you'll often see in a contract is that there, the contract will say that the terms and conditions of the contract not only are those that are set forth in the printed terms before you, but it will reference other documents. It could be the uh, your client's agreement with the owner of a construction project. It could be uh, it could be the contract drawings or some other body of documents that aren't available to you before or, or before you when you're reviewing it and deciding whether to sign a contract okay however if there are a, if there is a flow down or incorporation by reference clause those terms and conditions will become just as binding on you as the terms and conditions that are set forth in the physical document that you're being asked to sign now the problem for that is i think pretty obvious is if you don't take the time to understand what else is being incorporated into the contract, you may find yourself 
uh, agreeing to a whole host of things that you're completely unaware of. You may be agreeing to uh, a much broader form of indemnification. You may be agreeing to certain dispute resolution procedures that uh, you did not think you were agreeing to, termination provisions, and how your claims get processed. You also may be agreeing to a different scope of work than that it, which is uh, set forth in your proposal. And if you're, you've been paying attention that you've uh, done a good enough job to incorporate in the main body of the document uh, itself. So you need, to be you need to be aware of what are called flow down and incorporation by reference clauses. They are quite common in construction industry contracts and some of you may also be familiar with them. And if you see those types of clauses in your contracts where they reference other documents besides which those are before you, you should request them and review them as well. Just because you didn't have them at the time doesn't give you a defense uh, that they're any less binding on you. And in fact, I've even seen contracts where it's said that by signing it, you've either reviewed those third party documents or waived the right to do so. Now, what about payment? And when I mean payment, when and how are you going to get paid for your work? When, meaning uh, what, in what time frame after you complete your work and you submit your invoice, will the, your customer be required to pay you? And also, uh, uh, how is it that your customer is required to pay you? And I don't mean cash or check or some form of wire. I mean... What are the prerequisites that you need to achieve to be entitled to payment? Is it simply that you have performed? Does your work need to be approved by a third party? Uh, are there documents that you need to sign in conjunction with submitting a request for payment? So that's what I mean by how. How are you going to get paid and what things do you need to do to check all the boxes to get paid by your customer? Now, in this area, uh, one of the most frustrating clauses, I think, for those that are the uh, that are uninitiated folks, unlike you that have sat through a seminar like this, comes uh, in the form of something called pay when paid and pay if paid clauses. Now, there are two distinct types of clauses in a contract. They both relate to payment. Uh, one is much more onerous than the other. Uh, and because it's much more onerous, it has the potential to be much more uh, impactful to your business and your cash flow. So when we discuss pay when paid clauses, we are simply referring to a timing mechanism in a contract that sets forth when you will receive payment within how many days after your customer receives payment does that payment need to be remitted to you? Is it 10 days? Is it 15 days? Is it 20 days? And what's important and the distinction between a pay when paid and what we're going to talk about a pay if paid clause is that it does not condition payment to your customer or does not condition your payment on your customer receiving a corresponding payment. So that's pay when paid, much less onerous, not too damaging to you, 
just gives the uh, your client a little breathing room as to when uh, it needs to pay your invoice. Not so with pay if paid clauses. A pay if paid clauses a clause is considered a condition precedent. And what that means in the law is that something must happen before your client is obligated to pay you anything. And that's something that must happen before your client is obligated to pay you is that it must receive payment from its client. So if you're working as a subcontractor or for somebody that uh, is not the owner of the project, this is where it's going to become critically important. Because when you're working as a lower tier subcontractor or someone else that's not in direct contractual privity with the owner of the project, you're down the uh, payment stream. The owner holds all the payment and disperses that payment to the persons that uh, and entities that <clears throat> they've entered into contracts with. And then those uh, persons or entities will disseminate payment further down the payment food chain. Now, if you're in that type of situation, there is a pay, there is frequently <clears throat> clauses known as paid if pay clauses that says that if that person up the food chain does not get paid, you don't get paid. And that person with whom you maintain a contract with has no duty or obligation to pay you, even though you may have completed your work in a good and workmanlike manner, you've submitted all required documents to receive payment and have done nothing wrong other than being unlucky enough to be down the payment food chain where on a contract where there's a pay if pay clause. Now, that may seem unfair, but the way the courts look at this is they consider it a risk shifting provision. And it shifts the risk of loss of non-payment by the owner or the higher tier contractor to the person that agreed to a pay if paid clause. And it's to some respects contracts, but it's particularly in the construction world, uh, are, are, are as much a uh, duty and obligation document as it, as it is a risk shifting document. Who holds the risk of various uh, incidents that can occur uh, in the course of construction on a project? And one of those risks is the risks of non-payment. Now, Pay of paid clauses and the interpretation of them and the enforceability of them vary, do vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I primarily practice in Pennsylvania and to a lesser extent, the state of New Jersey. Uh, but each jurisdiction you need to be familiar with whether they're enforceable and to the what extent they are enforceable. In Pennsylvania, they're absolutely enforceable. In New Jersey, they are enforceable, but to somewhat of a lesser extent. Unfortunately, I don't have a 50 state survey of uh, what uh, the enforceability of pay play clauses are in your jurisdiction if you're if you're not uh, uh, practicing in one of those two jurisdictions. So it's important to understand that. I am just giving you a, a sort of a general overview of pay of pay clauses, uh, and it's it's important to understand uh, that these this general knowledge can be tweaked from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So because the, uh, the the understanding of this pay if pay clause is so important. And in fact, I would say that this is the number one clause. If you could change one clause in your contract uh, upon reviewing it, it's pay if paid. 
because f frankly, y y you're not in any good of a situation, no matter how uh, much money the contract is worth to you, if your customer is under no obligation to pay you and you don't uh, meet your cash flow obligations. You're not going to be in business very long, even if you have several contracts, if you're not receiving cash flow. So if there's one clause you could ever change in the contract, it's pay if paid. So, or just be aware of it and know the risks of getting involved with a project that has it. You might not be able to change it. And it may just be something that you have to live with in order to perform work on that particular project for that customer, but you should understand it. So what do you need to do to understand the difference between the two? Well, sometimes there's, it's, a, it's a subtle difference, as you can tell, maybe you can tell from some of the discussion I've been providing you. Uh, but look for terms such as condition precedent, if and only if, or unless and until. So, for example, if it says that your payment is not due, payment by the owner is a strict condition precedent to payment to you, you can be pretty sure that's going to be considered a pay if paid clause. If it says that your customer does not have to pay you uh, if and only if its customer pays it, you can be pretty clear that's going to be construed as a pay if paid clause. If your contract says that your payment isn't due unless and until your customer receives payment from someone else, you can be pretty sure that's going to be considered a pay if paid clause. So if you don't get if you if you have that and you don't get paid uh, and, and that hasn't been modified, um, no matter who the lawyer is, he or she is going to have a difficult time uh, trying to pry payment away from your customer if you have a pay of pay clause because they're generally uh, valid clauses and they're quite onerous. And as I said, uh, if there's one thing that uh, you could leave here with today, knowing and understanding in a contract that uh, I'd like to see changed for clients on a frequent basis is pay of pay clauses. So um, that brings us to the end of my short uh, webinar presentation on scope, price, time, and payment provisions of a contract. And with that, I'm going to turn this back over to Ingrid. Uh, and, and after her short presentation, I, we can open it up to any uh, uh, questions and answers. Being an architect or an interior designer can often feel like it's all about the deadlines and not the design. They also didn't tell you about the days you'd be spending staring at endless spreadsheets looking for that one material you used that one time that you want to use again for your current project. Trifolio. Our centralized material library keeps track of all the items you ever used and has a powerful search function so you can find your tried and trusted products and reuse them in your current project with a simple click. You will cut down drastically on the boring tasks and spend more time on design. Get your free trial today at folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Get your free trial and get back to what you really love doing, designing a better world. Okay, here we go. Something from Catherine Sherman. How detailed do you recommend we go on our scope? Well, I, like I said, I, I, I think you should go as detailed as possible with your scope, specifically calling out those items that 
I think are particularly not included in your scope of work that you may be concerned about that uh, uh, that they may that someone may anticipate you uh, including in your scope of paying for it. Firstly, uh, making clear that you're going to seek reimbursement for that. There's there's nothing. <laughs> No one's going to fault you for being too specific with your scope of work. So, uh, you know, use your intuition. Anything that you're concerned about or you say, I don't want to be stuck doing, um, you know, should be something that you put, you know, not included in scope, excluded from scope. So some separate paragraph in some form uh, that calls out whatever it is that you uh, that you don't feel that you should uh, perform or you're not agreeing to perform unless you uh, are con compensated a different amount. Yeah, to quote Wally, you can't be too specific and you can't be too precise. No, you really, you really can't. Okay. All right. Um, there was a question from Diane, but I guess that got answered as well. So contractually, scope stating what we will and won't do is a good proactive practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Ingrid. That's uh, like I said. That's one of the things I wanted to drive home. And then, and then, you know, to go back to what we said in the presentation is that, you know, if you spend all this time being specific and being precise on uh, what your scope is, make sure it, it vibes and melds with the larger document that you may be requested to sign. Um, you know, whether it be that your proposal uh, is attached to a larger document, uh, you want to make sure that it doesn't conflict with the terms. And, and, and frankly, if if you submit a proposal, I you know I, I, I sort of uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this is that I was working under the assumption that in a lot of cases and is frequently done that a proposal gets attached to a contract, a larger contract. But it just as well as if you submit a proposal and then you get back a contract that you're requested to sign and your proposal isn't referenced in that contract in any way, your proposal doesn't really mean anything because as I said. Um, the court's going to look to the written contract that you signed as to what you have agreed to perform, and it's not going to consider necessarily consider what your proposal says. Um, and in fact, there's there's often language in the contract that says any documents or any discussions or anything else that was uh, exchanged or talked about prior to the execution of the contract that you're going to put your pen to uh, is essentially out the window. So. Um, be wary of that. Don't spend all the time uh, preparing the proposal and just assume that by signing the contract, your proposal has somehow been incorporated uh, into the contract. Awesome, awesome. So it looks like we're um, going, um, we keep going back to a few um, salient points here in that, you know, it's always, it's always going to come back to what is written in the contract and it's always going to be what exactly was written in the contract and what is not written there and that's what's going to matter at the end of the day if a contract dispute does happen yeah it, it really is it it it, it does um and you know you just you just can't you got to spend the half hour or an hour going over your contract and and not be hasty in trying to get it back to a client to either appease their schedule or just in the rush to uh, to, to to bring in a new customer. In fact, I was just dealing with a um, 
I was just dealing with a, a, a client, a sophisticated client, uh, the other day, and I, and I, uh, they, they were de dealing with a customer that was based in uh, Georgia, and they were based in New Jersey, and um, they were, I, I asked them, they wanted to know if they could sue the customer in New Jersey because they owed them a lot of money, and, and I said it really depended, and I said, well, first, do you have an agreement with them, and. To my surprise, they, they weren't really even sure. And then they said, well, well, I think we do. I think we have something that they presented to us and we signed. And I said, well, could you send it to me? And we found out that in the contract, it said that all disputes had to be resolved in California. So the, the customer was based in Georgia. My client was based in New Jersey. And they had a contract that said that they had to bring litigation in California, which is a, which is a, a binding provision except for certain exceptions. But it was it was probably something that the customer that sent them that proposal didn't even know. It's uh, it's all too common that people pull contracts or boilerplate things off of the internet and think and, and don't even spend any time reviewing it themselves. But this now this client who's owed a lot of money is faced with the prospect of having to sue this customer in California because neither of them took any time to read the document that was presented two years ago at the inception of the relationship. Hmm. I do have a follow-up question for that, but first let's go to Catherine. This is a really, really good question because I see it a lot in um, in interior designer forums. Um, so Catherine says, I am an interior designer. Is there a best method for estimating time on a project? We tend to run into clients who either move uh, smoothly through, through the project or who drag their feet, shop on their own, et cetera, and really drag out the timeline. Well, I can sympathize with um, the interior design world for two reasons. One's because my wife is is in the industry. She's an interior designer. And I, um, I'm always telling her, you have to build like me, which is you have to account for uh, every minute of your time. And that can be very difficult. But that's the only way that you're really going to uh, a a, you know, get paid for the value that you put into a project. And I, I, I you know, there, there's there's not much uh, similarities between the interior design world and the and the construction law world, except for the way clients uh, take advantage of our time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I mean, I, I I feel your pain because I have clients that do the same thing, and it, and then, like I said, it gets close to home. I I, I I I think you need to be you you need to be cognizant of two things first. If if you're if you're billing at an hourly rate um, like some designers do, then then you just need to be uh, unbelievably disciplined about um, about your timekeeping and how you bill, and otherwise you're leaving money on the table and and you're really letting the client take advantage of you. Um, alternatively, um, you know if you're if you're if you're working for a client under a firm fixed price proposal, when you're putting your proposal together. I, you need to be aware of the fact that clients often do that and that especially in today's world I mean I think what goes lost in in the in the world where um, in professional services where where time is essentially our product as much as our knowledge um, in today's world where folks exchange text messages and emails and have questions for you at all hours of the night and they you know that that time adds up and and that time to me is is something that you should be compensated for. So I, I'd add that. Now, 
you know, as far as uh, your specific question about clients sort of circumventing you and 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 kind of taking your ideas and shopping on your own, um, you know, it's a little bit beyond the uh, the discussion that we had today. But I, I I think there are certain contractual terms certainly that you could include in your contract that would would prohibit uh, prohibit your client from doing that, or if your client does that and you find out about it, uh, they would comp- you know compensate you in the same way. That, the, that they would compensate you if you had procured the product yourself. If you, um, you know, I know I often, uh, like I said, just from my personal experience, interior designers can get a product at one price and they they sell it to the client at another price, and and, and part of their compensation is the is the delta at that price. Um, you know, it's 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 almost like the 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 standard clause in a real estate contract with a with a, a real estate broker. You know, if the real estate broker lists your house and then you go out and say thanks a lot, go advertise the house, but uh, someone that they bring to you calls you on the side and says, "Hey, let's cut the realtor out. Let's let's do a deal together." Um, so that realtor that realtor is still going to be entitled to their commission. So there's it would be similar calls to that. Okay. All right, uh, from Diane. <laughs> this is a really good question. Um, so regarding this topic that we were talking about just now, uh, is a clause for client indecision, stalling, non-communication, uh, halting work with LOA stating the consequences okay? Uh, if I understand the question correctly, if a client stalls or doesn't or doesn't uh, give you a, a, a decision on something that is is stating in the contract some sort of consequence of that okay is that is that the question um yes yeah certainly yeah you can put whatever language in the contract you want i mean i i i i, I sort of have that language in my my agreements with clients you know if you don't get back to me and you don't provide me guidance on, on what the uh uh, what it is that you'd like me to do in the direction you'd like to take your your case, then I can I can terminate the contract for you. And 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 one of the later things that we'll talk about, uh, you know, it, it, and again, this is only the the first part of a um, of a series of of webinars. We only discussed uh, uh, the, the topics of uh, price, scope, time, and and payment provisions today. But I believe one of the future uh, webinars will discuss you know things like termination. So how do you get out of a bad deal, right? How do you get out of a bad deal with somebody if if you just got a nightmare client and uh, what you can do to uh, protect yourself? Very good. Um, so Catherine says, thank you for this uh, fantastic presentation. Are you available for hire outside of Pennsylvania and New Jersey? It, yeah, it depends. It depends on on the uh, the scope of what uh, that you're you're looking to uh, have done. You know, for for transactional type stuff, like I said, contract review and type of the, things like that. It's not necessarily a jurisdictional specific thing that I'm prohibited from uh, assisting clients outside my 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 core locations. You know, if it requires some sort of court appearance, uh, uh, that gets a little trickier. But uh, doesn't necessarily preclude me from doing it. It just gets a little bit more complicated. Awesome. So going back to um, to Diane's question um, again, it looks like it all just boils down to what is written on the contract and what both parties specifically agree to. So you know, yeah, you can definitely um, put together any sort of conditions 
and things like that, which would be super helpful for um, for clients who do dry their feet. Um, so yeah, um, I think a lot more people are going to be um, interested in getting in touch and asking for advice. So um, please tell us, Wally, how we can get in touch with you. Yeah, sure. I think you, if you're looking at your screen now, I mean, all my contact information uh, is, is in the lower right-hand corner. I mean, the best way to get in touch with me is uh, uh, via email. My email's there. It's wally at uh, zimalongwall.com. Um, website's on there. I, I, I also um, I also have a blog uh, that uh, I've had for about seven years. It's a uh, told a great resource uh, for folks called uh, supplementalconditions.com. It's got uh, some videos of me as Ingrid's showing. I've been trying to, to, to do some more video blogs so you can see what I look like in person. And uh, um, But there's also a lot of written content. And again, it, it goes back seven years. So there's there's a, there's a actually a ton of content on there and uh, resources and Get in touch with us. Get in touch with Wally for um, for questions. And um, yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. Thanks a lot, Ingrid. Thank you, Wally. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye. This podcast is brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification and data management software for the design and build industry. Our software streamlines the creation of product schedules, purchasing, invoicing, creating documents, and more. If you'd like to know more, please go to folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O.com.